0: Well, today we're going to finish our journey into the life of Joseph. But in order to do that, I want to introduce to you a concept that uh, might seem foreign. That Christmas is all about Jacob and Esau. I remember the wise men. I remember the shepherds. I don't quite remember Jacob and Esau. So we're going to go backwards before we go forward. We're going to cover a lot of scripture this morning to give you a background on the story. To do that, I want to have you track with me through these images. These are going to be the scenes we're going to look at today. We're going to start in the womb with Jacob and Esau. We're going to move to a selling of a birthright with some stew. We're going to have the lying of a, to a father to get that birthright. We're then going to have a, a moment of fear as a group of 400 men are going to come after Jacob. He's going to wrestle with an angel And then he's going to finally meet face-to-face with Esau again, with his family watching. Now, In order to do that, we're going to look at a a real pattern, I think, that is so practical here at Christmas. And, And that is so painfully practical, it's almost too painful to look at. And here's the principle. If I, if you, are not actively fighting the patterns of the past, you'll be writing those patterns into the future. If you and I are not passively... I guess i got to work on some stuff. If you don't actively can identify the patterns of the past, the dysfunction of the past, the habits that have been modeled for you from the past, if you're not actively fighting the patterns of the past, you'll be writing those patterns into the future for future generations. So we're going to look at some Christmas traditions of Jacob and Esau. Not necessarily good traditions, but how they've acted. Or look at some Christmas memories that they set forward that impact future generations, and ultimately the Christmas spirit that's released because of what they do. My hope is as we study this together, these different scenes, we're going to develop not only self-awareness but create a path to change for ourselves. And then we're going to see that God works in extraordinarily dysfunctional situations. So if you're about to head home for the holidays, or your family's already here, or about to be here, and you're like, "Oh man, I hope it's brief." You're going to see that if God can work in their family, he can work in yours as well. Let's begin with Christmas memories. We're looking at these Christmas traditions, rather, that we've had modeled for us, that if we don't actively change or fight them, they end up writing themselves into our story as well. We begin in the womb. God turns to to Jacob's uh, parents and says, Two nations are in your womb. Two people will be separated from your body. One people will be stronger than the other, and as the children are given birth, one of them comes out incredibly hairy, like a big hairy garment he comes out, and his name is Esau. However, as he's on his way out of the womb as the oldest, afterward his brother came out and his hand took hold of Esau's heel, trying to control the the situation, trying to get out first, trying to grab that blessing even from the womb. So they called him Jacob, which can mean deceiver or liar, a great name to start with. And yet that pattern that we see in the womb is a pattern that stays with him his whole life. It's a Christmas tradition in his life that he really stays with him up until his final years with Joseph in Egypt. He's a controller. He's a manipulator. He's a deceiver. And that pattern was modeled to him by his mom, we'll see in a moment, and his dad. And because he doesn't actively fight that pattern, even from the womb, it gets written into the pattern of his life and impacting his kids for generations. Well, the next scene, God had said, I want to bless Jacob, the younger versus the older. But instead of trusting God to work that out in his timing, he always felt like he had to manipulate and take things in his own hands. So he jumped from controlling from the womb into the next pattern is manipulating the stew. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That's why he's called Edom. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is a birthright to me? But Jacob said, to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lenten stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. And here we see Jacob's mindset in life is, I don't give unless I get. I'm going to manipulate you, find you in your moment of weakness, use that, exploit that to my own advantage. And that manipulative technique, though it will sometimes serve him well to get what he wants, More times than not, it will cause incredible dysfunction and pain in his family in this generation and modeling it for future ones. But even after the controlling and even after the manipulation, he still decides he hasn't done enough. So now his father is old. His father is dying. His father's eyesight isn't quite what it used to be. And he tells Esau to go and and get some food and to come back and he will bless him. Meanwhile, mom overhears the conversation, runs to Jacob and says, Jacob, this is our chance to lie to dad. I mean, this is our chance to get the blessing. So here's what you do. Make the food. I'll even help you with it. Cover yourself with the furs. So, so my husband, who, you know, can't see real well, let's exploit his handicap. What a dysfunctional family. I want you to dress up furry, and I want you to pretend to be and use your your, your, your brother's voice. So sure enough, his aging Blind father has this encounter with him. and Jacob says to his father, I am Esau, <coughs> I am Esau your firstborn. I have done just as you told me. Uh, please arise, sit and eat my game, that your soul may bless me. Isaac said to his son, how is it that you found it so quickly, my son? And he spiritualizes his deceit. Oh, because the Lord, your God, brought it to me. Isaac said to Jacob, please come near that I may feel you, my son, whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father. He felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him. Because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's. So he blessed him. And he said one more time, Are you really my son Esau? I am. Bring near to me, and I will eat of my son's game, so that my soul may bless you. And he brought near to him and ate, and he brought him wine, and he drank, and his Father Isaac said, come near and kiss me, my son. He smelled the aroma of the outdoors with him and said, I want to bless you. So here is this pattern. His mom says, "Let's lie to dad. Now son is learning how to lie to father. And those patterns of lying is what his sons will do to him when Joseph is, is, is sold off. These patterns from the past in this family just keep getting passed on generation after generation because no one stands up and says, I'm going to actively fight the patterns of my past. Which then leads to Esau coming home. And Esau is not real thrilled, as you can imagine. that He just lost his inheritance, the double portion of the blessing. He's furious. He's angry. So now we see another Christmas tradition in Jacob and Esau. And that is the Christmas tradition that we all participate in, the Christmas tradition of holding a grudge. So Esau hated Jacob, literally in Hebrew. He held a grudge against him because of the blessing which his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, the days of mourning for my father at hand. But after that, I will kill my brother Jacob. And Rebekah says to Isaac, here she is manipulating him again. So she just got one son to lie to him. And now she tries the old martyr technique, the Eeyore technique. And again, many of you, we've had this modeled for us in some way as well. Oh man, I'm just weary of life. Because of the daughters of Heth. You know, if Jacob takes a wife from the daughters of Heth like these, I just don't know if I'm going to make it. What good will my life even be? Now, what she's saying is Esau had married a woman of Heth, a woman from Canaan. She doesn't like her daughter-in-law, is what she's saying. Now, she's really trying to manipulate her husband to send Jacob away so he doesn't get killed by Esau. But again, her technique, her pattern is, I play the martyr, I play the the, the hurt, wounded uh, water buffalo, and that's how I manipulate and get what I need. So sure enough, she plays the card. Now Esau overhears this, or overhears the speech that dad gives to his son later related to it. Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Paddan Aram to take himself a wife from there. And as he blessed him, he gave him a charge saying, now here's 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 the deal, son. You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. And Jacob obeyed his father and mother and had gone to Padam Haram. And Esau saw. Now his whole life he's been married to women who had foreign gods. His whole life he was totally oblivious to the fact that his parents disapproved of that relationship. Until this moment when he heard his father tell his brother to marry someone not like his brother did. So Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan did not please his father Isaac. And here we see two things. One, we see grudges are part of the family tradition. We see this sort of manipulation through poor me, martyrdom as part of the family tradition. More than that, we see this, what I'll just call obliviousness. I think one of the things that keeps us from uh, transforming ourselves to the power of Christ is most of us are not aware of the patterns of the past. Esau isn't even aware that he has been gone totally against his parents' values, totally against his God, totally against God's instruction, until this moment, like, wait a second. You mean you've been disappointed in in me and how we've handled the relationship? What's been going on for 20 years? Yet many of us, that's the very thing that's keeping us from experiencing all the freedom God has for us. We're oblivious to our patterns. The people around us are being hurt by our manipulation, or our lying, or our controlling, or our bitterness, or our pride, or whatever it is. And if you ask everyone around you, coworkers, friends, family members, hey, what do I need to work on? They'd be like, I got a list! But we don't ask them, and so we're oblivious to the fact. And even though just a little bit of community would help us work on those traditions, we don't engage in that. And therefore, because we're not fighting the traditions of the past, we end up writing those traditions into our future. Not just for ourselves, but for future generations. So here's what will happen. Because of this moment, Jacob and Esau, who were once close, but always had this frictional relationship, Jacob will be sent off. He'll be sent off to live with Laban. And there will be a distance that will grow between Jacob and Esau that will last over 20 years. Last we saw Esau, he was angry and ready to kill his brother. Jacob runs off to the area where Laban lived and he spent seven years working for one wife. He gets manipulated gets to feel the sting of lying, because now he's been lied to. He then marries another woman, the one he really loved, that uh, was the sister of the other, and now seven more years pass. Then he works with Laban for six years. So it's been over 20 years since he has seen his brother. And I think if you ask Jacob and Esau 20 years ago, are you ever going to let 20 years pass between the time you reconcile, or, or are you going to have 20 years lost in your family and the cousins and the nephews? They say, not a chance. But the thing about these patterns is they end up stealing time from us. 20 years have been stolen. And I bet you another 20 would go by, except that God appears to Jacob and tells him it's time to model something different. It's time to redeem these 20 years by creating new memories, new Christmas memories to break those Christmas traditions for your family. But before we move on to that, I think we need to ask the question, which is, what are the things in my past that God might want me to work on? What are the things that God might be convicting me of? What are the things this Christmas I want to say, God, I want you to help me work on the fact that I fudged the truth? I want you to work on my fact that I I control for my own sake or my self-centeredness. Or God, I want this to be the moment that I say this is the year, this is the week, this is the month that I want you to begin to redeem me of the patterns that frustrate me about my family, but I'm still acting out in my own. God, I don't want to lose 20 years with anyone. Not my son, not my daughter, not my parents. I don't want to lose 20 more if I've already lost 20. God, help me to fight the patterns of my past. I can write new patterns of hope and joy into my future. That's exactly what Jacob does. In fact, it's so powerful. Jacob decides, I'm going to start modeling for my family humility and reconciliation. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau. So he sends messengers. That's going to be key in a moment. So he sent messengers to go to Esau in the land of Sarah in the country of Edom. And he commanded them saying, speak thus to the Lord Esau, your servant, Jacob. Not that you're conniving, lying, cheating. I want Esau to know I'm humbly coming to you and saying, I wronged you. I'm your servant. I've done wrong by you. I'm your servant. You see more of the humility here. He says, let me tell you, God's been good to me over the years. I've I've dwelt with Laban and stayed here until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male and female servants. his way of saying, God has prospered me financially. I've got a great company with lots of people working for me, men and women. And I sent to tell my Lord that I might find favor in your sight. Despite all the success I have, despite all of the the outside uh, markings of success, God has told me that my relationships aren't right. God has told me that despite from the outside I look really good, my resume looks really good, people might have to seek after my life and say, oh, I wish I had what Jacob had. But God has shown me that underneath all of the outside trappings that look good, my relationships aren't right. And God has pushed me to do something I don't really want to do, quite frankly. Which is to try and reconcile. It's scary. It's easier just to let the 20 years continue. But God is telling me that I need to model something for myself and for future generations. He models humility. He models it a second way here in the passage. He says, I want to find favor in your sight. Let me tell you what I'm after. I'm not after anything. I'm not trying to steal anything. I just want to find favor. I want to make things right between us. So the messengers returned to Jacob and said, we came to your brother Esau and he's coming to meet you. Oh, that's great to climb up on the hill and looks, he climbs up and he looks, he's coming to meet you with 400 men. (laughs) God, are you sure you want me to do this? God, I thought this is the right thing to do to reconcile That 400. You don't show up to greet your brother who stole your birthright with. 400 men unless you're about to kill him but god told me to do this i don't want to do this and every time you decide to change a pattern of your past i tell you what's going to happen it's going to be fear you know what it's not worth it let's just go back to what we know it's dysfunctional it doesn't always work but it's what i know we choose the bondage of the past rather than facing the fear of the future he's like all right so that night he has this moment with god and he faces his fear and while facing his fear, he also begins to wrestle with God. He models two more things for future generations. He wrestles with fear. It says, So Jacob, seeing the 400 men, was greatly distressed, greatly afraid. He divided the people that were with him, the flocks and the herds and the camels into two companies. He said, if Esau comes to one company, at least half of us can get away. God, are you sure you want me to do this? And he wants to model for his future generations, that he's a guy who faces his fear. He could have run away. He said, forget it. He said, I want to, I want to face my fear. We did that. We went to uh, Israel and Turkey a few months ago, my wife and I, and we sat down with the kids at Red Lobster uh, a few days before we left because it's my daughter's favorite place. And I said, now, you know, you've heard a lot of things about the news report about terrorists in Turkey and bad things going on in Israel and bombings, and I want you to know that we, you know, we've checked into this. We feel like it's safe. we prayed about this. We feel like God's calling us to go. But we also want you to know that there's danger and I said, you know, so we want to tell you that we think we're safe, and it's not a big deal, but we also know that life's uncertain, and there's a lot of fears, and everybody's telling us, you know, don't go, don't go, it's scary, scary, scary. But we're facing our fears, and, uh, you know, guys, this might be our last supper together. I think, you know, it could be. I said We don't think it is. But we want you to know that if something did happen to us, God is still trustworthy. We would not want your faith to be impacted by a tragedy that happened to mom and dad. And so I sort of had that comment, and then we began to just talk together, and we laughed together. We had a great time. In fact, the waitress kept coming by because we were having such a great time cracking uh, snow crab legs and throwing them at each other. You know, Don't, don't have dinner with the Hovens. It's a lot of fun, but uh, it's not always... Uh, you know, anyway, so we're having a good time, laughing, enjoying each other. And the waitress comes by. She goes, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. She goes, what's going on here? I said, what do you mean? You guys are laughing and, and just having a great time as a family. But every time I walk by, I hear things like... Now let me tell you what the will says. <laughs> this might be our last supper together. <laughs> I've never seen this combination of joy and, and reality face to face. And I said, well, we're, we're heading, my wife and I are heading over to Israel to do a study about the Bible, and, and we're just trying to let our kids know that uh, there's some dangers, but that we trust them. And, and it was just such a neat moment. And we have lots of dysfunctional moments as well. This happened to be one of the good ones in our family. Um, but we wanted to model for our kids. How to face your fear and not be controlled by fear in your life. And I think that's what Jacob's doing here in wrestling. Not only that, he's going to model a wrestling relationship with God. What does it look like to wrestle with God? What does it look like to say, God, I don't get what you're doing. I understand why you'd ask me to do this. God, you put me in danger. I'm going to die with 400 swords. Why would you do this? And he wrestles with his angel. But the angel is noted to be a man. Many think this is a theophany, which is an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ. Because it's this angel, but it's the angel man. And the phrase, the angel of the Lord, often refers to when Jesus would show up in the Old Testament. So it's not just a angel wrestling, Jacob. It's the angel of the Lord. Jesus himself wrestling with him. And as they're wrestling, he touched the socket of his hip and, and knocked it out of joint. He wrestled with him. He said, let me go for the daybreak. He said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what's your name? Jacob, I'm the deceiver. I'm the manipulator. He said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with man have prevailed. And I think to be authentic with our kids and say, be authentic with our friends, those in our small groups, to be authentic with those we work with and not pretend that the Christian life is easy or doesn't come with questions or struggles. What people are longing for is something authentic and real. Yeah, I'm mad at God because of this. I'm frustrated, at God. I'm wrestling with God in the midst of this. It's so powerful. It's so meaningful. It's so helpful. In fact, his name Israel for generations, even to this day, will be God wants people who wrestle with Him, contend with Him, in the midst of life struggles. But then He models something else, and this is the Christmas memory that changes everything. In the midst of all His bad. Christmas traditions, this is a memory that will change generations. So he put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children behind, and Rachel, and look at the one child who's mentioned by name, Joseph, last. Then he crossed over before them. He bowed himself to the ground seven times. And so here he goes closer and closer. He's now coming up to Jacob. He bows to him seven times to show humility. Hey, I'm here to serve you. Hey, please don't kill me. I'm just trying to make things right. God told me to do this. And watching from a distance is his children. But specifically mentioned in the text is Joseph. He came near his brother. And Esau ran to meet him. Dun, dun, dun. He ran with his 400 men. And in that moment, you think he's going to die. He embraced him. And he fell on his neck and kissed him. And they wept together. Because of 20 years that were left lost. He lifted his eyes and saw the women and children... Esau says, Who are these women and children? So he said, The children whom God has graciously given your servants. And here is a young man named Joseph who watches his father reconcile with his brother Esau. Do you think that's going to create a memory that will impact him later in life? Well, jump with me to the end of Genesis. Joseph's brother saw the father was dead. They said, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil we've done. So they sent messengers to Joseph. When you're in trouble, when there's a a problem, what did dad do? Well, he sent messengers to the guy that there was a problem with. So let's send messengers to see if we can make something work. Same phrase. Saying, hey, remember before dad died, he said, please forgive us. Well, dad meant that dad's dead. He's still going to do it. Please forgive the trespass of your servants. Of the God of your father. Remember, God would want you to do this. God want our dad to do this. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers fell down before his face. Wow, he fell down just like their dad did. And they said, look at the phrase, We are your servants. A lot of dysfunction in Jacob and Esau's life. But the Christmas memory that he modeled through humility, reconciliation, is the thing that served his family well when they needed it in crisis. These kind of things are sticky, they're ugly. Rarely do you run up and say, I want to make things right, and does somebody throw their hand around your neck? Let me just tell you, that's not usually how it works. It's hard work of wrestling. It's hard work of trying to figure out how to, how to make things right. But when you do it, people watch and say, that's real. And it impacts future generations in powerful ways. And Joseph said to them, and look at this, do not be afraid. From I am the place of God to judge you. As for you, you meant evil against me. There's no doubt. I'm not going to pretend it wasn't bad. It was bad. It was evil. But God meant it for good. In order to bring about, as it is this day, to save many people alive, do not be afraid. Just like Jacob was afraid. I will provide for you. I'm not only going to forgive you, I'm going to provide for you. Unbelievable gracious love. I'm going to provide not only for you, but for your little ones. I'm going to provide for my nephews. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Look at this love. Look at this grace. This is a a Christmas love, a Christmas spirit, a Christmas forgiveness that is just out of this world. He forgives them. He comforts them. He provides for them. He he, he speaks kindly to them. These are the guys who wasted about 20 years of his life. Because he's been in Egypt about 20 years. So where would this guy... Joseph, be willing to forgive brothers who wasted 20 years of his life. He saw it in his dad. And he actually saw that Esau was willing to forgive as well, which created a model. And that will set us up for the ultimate Joseph. The ultimate Christmas spirit that God wants to drop into you and I in the midst of dysfunction, in the midst of problems, is the spirit of the power of Jesus. Because the ultimate Jacob will show up. The ultimate Joseph will show up in the Christmas story. And he too will forgive his enemies. He too will provide for them and speak kindly to them and watch out for them. And yet in the middle of the Christmas story, we will come face to face with two characters, Jesus and Herod. Herod, the most all-powerful man in the world who built his whole life about himself, wanting to make a name for himself. It was all about me, 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 master builder, multi, multi, multi multi-billionaire, so much money the Roman Empire borrowed money from him. Master architect, I got a chance to see many of his palaces a couple of years ago. I got to go to Caesarea Philippi and see of his, his palace harbor that he marbled all about me. I don't want anyone to ever forget who I am is how he built his life. And ironically, I didn't know anything about him except a footnote in the Christmas story. The guy who built his life making sure he wasn't forgotten has pretty much been forgotten. And the person who built his life on serving others changed the world. But I told you Christmas is all about Jacob and Esau. Let's turn with me to Matthew. Well, actually, before I do that, let me tell you about Josephus, who was a historian. Josephus, a Jewish historian, was writing. And he said that Esau's descendants inhabited a land, a region called Edumia. So Esau's descendants end up in Edumia. It says it twice He fell upon the Edumians, the prosperity of Esau. So there was a lot of prosperous people, Esau's descendants. And they lived in Edumia. Later on, he'll say, the kingdom of Herod was at work in the days that Jesus was born. Who, Herod, was no more than a private man because he was Edumian. So here in Christmas, we come face to face with the ultimate Esau. A man who has spent his life being about pride and arrogance and controlling and manipulation and self-centeredness. And me, 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 it's all about me. Narcissism. But Matthew tells us that here in the Christmas story we have both an Esau and a Jacob. Matthew chapter 1 opens up and says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac and Isaac begot Jacob. But there it is. The ultimate Jacob is here In the manger. And he's going to come face to face. His kingdom is going to come face to face with another kingdom. The kingdom of the ultimate Esau. And here Jacob and Esau, we will find out which wins out. Not only with them, but which wins out with you and I. Which kingdom will prevail in your life? See, there's a kingdom of Esau. A kingdom of Herod that's always trying to write into the future what was written in our past. Or is there a greater kingdom that can overcome the kingdom of the past? Is there an ultimate Jacob we can tap into who will give us not only the spirit of Christmas, but the Holy Spirit, that when he comes and dwells in us, he can overcome anger and hurt and shame and lost years, as the prophet Joel says, that God can restore for the years the locusts have eaten. And this ultimate Jacob, in the next verse, next chapter of Matthew, it says, was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of the ultimate Esau. And here we will find that in that manger is a kingdom that prevails, that we're here talking and learning about it some 2,000 years later, that love of others really triumphs consoling power for yourself. Sacrificial living is better than controlling other people. That being others-focused really triumphs over being me focused. That being humble really triumphs over pride. That forgiveness can triumph over revenge. And this Christmas, God says, I have a gift for you. The ultimate Jacob. The ultimate Joseph is me. And I will put my spirit in you. So whatever dysfunction you have, if you have dysfunction in your life or in your family, you're a candidate for a miracle. I love working with dysfunctional people. And if you've got fear about getting together with family, if you got fear of what's going to happen, who's going to say what, I want you to know I want to place my spirit in you. Wrestle with me over it. And know that the stakes are high because it's not just what you're doing, but it's what those around you see modeled is going to transform and be tools in their tool belt 10, 20, 30 years from now because you chose to do the hard work. You chose to fight the patterns of your past so you could write future patterns into your history ones that were based on a different kind of kingdom. And I think my takeaway here, one of the reasons I mentioned last year that I tried to re- I've been trying to reconcile with my brother for four years, and I sent letters that were disregarded, I sent emails and Facebooks, and nothing worked. I really felt compelled to go to Hollywood last year and to try and reconcile. More than that, I felt compelled to bring my son along. And so my brother can only meet at 5.30 in the morning, which is not my ideal time. And certainly not my teenagers, ideal time. But I said that, Javen, I really want you to get up with me. Why? Because I want you to see what I'm trying to do. It probably will blow up in my face. It probably won't work. But I want you to see me trying to reconcile. I want you to watch and tell me if you think I'm being humble. I want you to watch and tell me after we're done if you think that I own my own stuff. I want you to tell me when we're done if you felt like in, in the face of accusations that I don't believe are true, did I try and hold on to and agree with and own the part that was true. So Javen watched in this crummy old mills diner looking place at 5.30 in the morning as my brother and I reconciled, and we're talking again. Certainly it's not throw your arms around and, and, and you know, hug each other's necks, but there were a lot of tears. And I hope that that authentic, difficult, I wish I wasn't here moment I had will serve him. I got a text from my daughter this week. so something like this. I'm frustrated. I've been with her for the last couple hours. What are you frustrated with? You. <laughs> I feel like I'm pretty self-aware. And I feel like I work really hard to own my own junk. And I had seriously had no idea why she was mad. No idea. So wh- what did I do? And she explained, you didn't ask my opinion. You rushed forward on this. And I'm getting mad. I, I knew exactly. And I, we're texting, which I don't recommend. But because of where we were, there was no way to call. So tip I'd be like, don't text. But in this case, it was the only way to communicate in this moment. And I said, well, what did I do? And she goes, you went fast, you ask my opinion. And I'm thinking, not only did I ask your opinion, I asked your opinion five times and you didn't give it to me. You could have said it here, or here, or here, or here, or here. So this is what's happening in my mind. So the text actually worked better for me because I could reflect on myself before I spoke. And I went, you know what, this is a real pattern in my life. I move fast. I think about things deeply. I weigh things in my head, and sometimes I don't bring people along with me. In work or family, I have tendency to say, have made a decision. And, and though I really do want collaboration, I really do want people to come along, I really do want to be a group process because I can be so strong in my decision-making that people feel like I'd already made a decision before they talked to me. So I text her back and said, honey, I'm sorry. This is, a, this is a pattern in my life that I go too fast and I make people feel like their opinions don't matter. Will you forgive me? And if you want, let's revisit this, this issue and, and we'll change the decision if you want. And she texts back, I forgive you. And we got home. Um, okay, that's why I was texting, because we were in the car. Don't text in the car. That's why I didn't tell this story. <laughs> um, and now she's texting in the car, and you know I'm a terrible dad. We, we, we pull in the driveway, and I come give her a hug, and I say, honey, I'm sorry. And then we got to talk more about it from that point. Um, and you know what? What's going to impact future generations? When we're honest about our mistakes, when we're trying to own our own junk as best we can... That's what I want to model for my kids. That's what I want to model for future generations. So for I think for you and I, here's the takeaway. To identify one pattern. What is one pattern of the past? Just one that you say, God, I am trusting. I am praying that this will not be a stronghold for future generations. I want to write new patterns. What is my Herod habit that I'm trusting Jacob to overcome? What is my Esau essay that's been written for my past generations that will probably be written for future generations unless I trust the ultimate Jacob to change it? God wants this Christmas to be different for you. Not glorified and pretty and sanitized and pretend, but real. And he offers real hope, real strength that can make real change. Christians, we should expect change. It should be inevitable if we're tapping into the power source. And this Christmas, he wants to give it to you and I. Let's pray. Father, thank you for how real your story is. Thank you that you're willing to uh, to work with us in our difficulty, work with us in our dysfunction. And thank you that you came to earth when we were yet sinners, you died for us. And Father, we are so thankful for your graciousness and your kindness that you would provide for us who had rebelled against you and crucified you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Three quick things as we go. Number one, we finished up Genesis. Believe it or not, we have now over the last 10 years covered all of Genesis. Um, and so now what we're going to do is we're going to move on to Thessalonians. So if you want to study over the Christmas break on Thessalonians, you can read that. Then we're going to do the Gospel of Mark next year. So that's something to study. Number two, we have a Christmas Eve service. We actually have eight of them. So pray for stamina for one thing, uh, but also uh, get tickets. So these are free complimentary tickets, but we want to make sure everyone has a seat. So if you don't have tickets for you and your family, you can get those on the way out for the different performances that we have. And then lastly, if you're looking for opportunities to invite friends, we have got a incredible new series we're working on that starts January 4th at our exploring service to invite friends to, called Clash of the Titans. Jesus takes on the Greek Pantheon, and you're going to see how Jesus comes face-to-face with these Greek godness and how he delivers truths that transform the world. A great exploring series invite your friends to. Thanks for being here. If you came prepared to give, there's offering boxes on your way out. Thanks again.